After Hours, looking back and reflecting on last week's sermon at Euston Church. Well, welcome to After Hours. Today I'm here with Ed Underhill, our assistant minister who just preached on the weekend on the Seven Trumpets. Thanks for joining me, Ed. Ah, thanks for having me. Uh, Yeah, thank you for your sermon. Uh, I'm sure that it's left a lot of people with a bunch of really helpful things to think about uh, going into this week and and beyond. As with last week, it would be helpful to to have a chat and think about uh, the passage a bit more, maybe rehash a few things in your sermon and also maybe expand on a few points that I'm sure uh, you were dying to uh, to say but just didn't have the time to on the weekend. Uh, I thought it would be helpful though if we started once again by just thinking about Revelation itself. We're coming across more and more complex imagery uh, and having to deal with that in our exegesis and how we think about the passage. And so I thought it, maybe it'd be good to just start by thinking through a few principles that we need to be uh, applying and thinking about as uh, as we read through this book. Yeah, thanks. Well, I mean, in, in terms of the imagery in particular, that is a big one for Revelation, isn't it? It's so full of imagery and, you know, the, the passages we've just looked at, chapters 8 and 9 this past Sunday, particularly so um, just, just stocked full of, of imagery. And I mean, just to kind of reiterate and build on one of the things I, I mentioned on Sunday, one of the big principles, I think, is is we're supposed to think Picasso, not photo. And people get all, into all sorts of trouble with Revelation when they try to interpret these images in, in kind of very literal ways. And that's just not the style of literature that Revelation is. You know, this is kind of dream sequence for, for John. This is vision. Um, these are pictures to, to try and help us understand realities that we find it very hard to get our minds a, around. And so, um, yeah, think very much P- Picasso, impressionistic picture um, rather than photo. It helps us to feel the, the truth. Um, that's often what pictures do, and, um, and impressionistic pictures p- particularly. Um, and so, you know, things like uh, numbers, Revelation is full of numbers that people have tried to interpret literally. That's, that's not really what they're, they're there for. They're there symbolically. Um, you know, next week, um, when we look at chapter 11, we're going to see these numbers, um, 1,360 days, 42 months, three and a half years, um, all, all actually the same period of, of time if you do the maths and, and count days like they used to in the first century, um, three and a half years. Um, that is half of seven, um, seven being a, a kind of number of completeness in the, the Bible regularly used as that. So three and a half, um, deliberately half of seven. Um, if, if seven years were to represent therefore kind of complete time, three and a half, I take it represents a limited time and will here next Sunday, why that's quite significant, um, limited time being referred to in, in chapter 11. And and I think the other thing I want to say on on that, on the imagery and how we understand it is, is just, and, and Tom, you'll probably want to pitch in on this a bit as well, but the, you know, lots of these images feel very weird to us. And the reason they feel weird to us is, is probably because we don't know our old testaments very very well or as well as we ought to and i i certainly feel that as i read through revelation and uh, and read through these images and then look in a commentary and think well i probably should have recognized that that image from exodus or uh, ezekiel or, or daniel 
Um, those books in, in particular, you know, as you don't need to know the whole Old Testament to get your head around the imagery in, in Revelation. Um, actually, there are just a few books in, in particular that Revelation consistently draws images from. Um, and that, I think, it explains the reason why we're sometimes confused at it when, when actually we're supposed to be thinking back to those Old Testament passages and, and those allusions are very deliberate so that we have the context of the Old Testament, those Old Testament passages in, in mind that helps us to interpret what's going on. Yeah, I think that's really helpful in uh, as um, people living in the 21st century, we don't have this cultural imagery as embedded into our minds as uh, Jews would have in the first century encountering uh, a Jew. Well, a Jewish and now a Christian uh, apocalyptic style text. Yeah. And I think it's really helpful as we think about these images, um, particularly in the context of your Picasso illustration, in that in many ways these images aren't creating a you know very specific detailed thing that we're meant to read and take literally, but that yeah. they are painting a picture that is creating a, a vibe and atmosphere in the passage. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That yeah, that helps us to understand what's going on, um, and, and so we've actually got to be pretty careful about importing a straight exegesis of those Old Testament passages straight into the vision that we're reading, because what seems to be happening most of the time in in these visions is it's it's actually more that there's a palette of 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 paints that are these Old Testament references, and they're being used to paint this image, uh, and so we shouldn't. We, we should be careful not to get too focused on one particular color and then lose the rest of the, the picture of what's going on in, in all of this. And and so it, it can be hard at times, I guess, not to import that exegesis and then make our passage about that, but the, being able to look at the bigger picture that's going on. Um, and that we're, we're not always meant to just understand all the imagery. This, this type of literature is trying to mm-hmm. put you into a state of awe rather than a state of intellectual understanding. And so it's trying to pull you into an atmosphere as you experience it. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's good we're studying Exodus in midweek, a lot of us um, this year. I, I hope you know, those of us who are, are studying Exodus and have recently studied the, the plagues, um, when, when we went through Revelation 8 and 9, and, and we, you know, we're going to see this again in, in chapter 16 later on in the book, um, that plague language, and those those illusions, I, I hope we're thinking, you know, that that does add more to our understanding of Revelation, our feeling of what what's going on here. Um, yeah, I, I talked about some of that in on on Sunday. Um, what kind of pictures? What what kind of understanding that's supposed to be conjuring up in our mind? Thinking of these things as Exodus-like plagues. Um, yeah, this idea, this is this is God's judgment for the persecution of His people. Um, after they cry out to him for, for rescue, it's, a, it's, a, it's the same situation in Revelation. Yeah, fantastic. That's one principle, Picasso, not photo. I think the other really important principle um, is to think this, this wasn't written first and foremost to us, but to readers in the first century. Um, and we often forget that, I think. The, this was first written to seven actual churches mm-hmm. um, and, and then for the, and then after that for the church generally, which means, uh, I think that's really important because it means what we see in these passages isn't going to mean something for, for them that it doesn't mean to us today and it, it's not going to mean something for us today 
that they wouldn't have understood then. Um, so there's a there's a tendency, particularly with these passages, to kind of read in very specific historical fulfillments of the things that that these chapters are describing. For example, you know the, the locusts. Yeah, you know, uh, some people say that the way the locusts are described in chapter nine. Um, you know, that is specifically f- fulfilled in the Apache attack helicopter, right? And I, I think I want to say, no, we, we can't go, go down that line because, you know, the first century readers, that would have meant nothing to them. They they didn't have Apache attack hel- helicopters in the day. This imagery must have meant something for them and it must mean something for, for us. So I think that, that's just to say, if, if we take into account the, the first century hearers, um, they they might have kind of interpreted these some of these details in specific things, and there are some clues I think in Revelation that you know th- these are talking about aspects of imperial Rome and um, you know, the, kind of the worship of, of emperors and, and things like that is in view in this book, and that's um, but that that's just the kind of specific application of the general principles that we get in Revelation for them. Um, there are these general principles that we're supposed to be learning, which are are timeless, um, and which which mean something for us today as as well. Does that make sense? So, we, I, I think that's a that's a helpful rule of thumb as we're going through to think it it didn't mean something for them then that it doesn't mean for us today, and it, it doesn't mean something for us today that they wouldn't have understood back then. Yeah, and that, that builds really helpfully on a bit of advice from from Kev, where he was saying that we need to make sure that we read the rest of Revelation through the churches that we've experienced. And yeah, that's that's really helpful. Uh, this isn't the last time that you're going to be uh, preaching in Revelation, and a, and a few of us have some some pretty interesting looking passages coming up in our sermons. Uh, what what sort of thing goes through your mind when you when you come across a passage like the Seven Trumpets? Yeah, well, I mean, when I when I first saw that I was down on the you know preaching road to preach chapters eight and nine, my initial reaction was, "Crikey, why me?" <laughs> I mean, it's just that these chapters are. I mean, they're difficult in in a number of ways on a number of levels. They're, they're difficult in in terms of just understanding, you know, what's this doing here? How's it fitting in the the book? You know, why do we need another one of these? cycles you know how is this different to the seven seals that's a question i've had before when i've read revelation and read through the, the seven trumpets hopefully um that that was made clear on on sunday um but also just i mean just emotionally difficult um and and really i think this is why doing expository preaching is such a, a vital thing and such a good exercise for us as a church going through a book passage by passage because i mean you know who <laughs> There might be some someone somewhere in the world, some people who like preaching about judgment, but uh, we, we generally we don't do. I I don't like preaching yeah. about judgment. Um, you know, I, I'm a coward. If you if you ask me if what passage I wanted to preach on last Sunday, let me pick. You know, let me. I'm not choosing Revelation eight and nine. <laughs> I'm just not going to choose that. Um, but but preaching through books of the Bible means I you know I have to and that's a good thing you know we we can't get away with skating over the bits of God's word that we find hard to hear and this is hard to hear chapters eight and nine you know, no no doubt about it these are you know, these are terrifying things that the Bible is describing here this is not comfortable reading um, and it doesn't make for comfortable preaching 
Um, but preaching an expository series through a book means we, we have to preach the whole counsel of God, which is right. Um, it's right that we do that. And um, even the uncomfortable bits, um, God's given this to us in his word for a reason. He's told us as as church leaders, we're responsible to preach the whole counsel of God. It, it's here for the good of the church. And, you know, hard as it is to hear, um, we, we need to hear it and, and take it to heart. It's it's important for us. And and thinking back over this this passage and, and thinking back over your sermon, um, you talked a lot about the difference of perspective in the chapter, um, particularly around its approach to judgment on the non-Christian world in response to the prayers of the saints. But but natural disasters uh, like like well like coronavirus, which you you mentioned in your sermon, they they don't just affect. Uh, the non-Christian world. Mm-hmm. Uh, us as a church have felt yeah. quite affected by them too. Uh, how? Yeah, can you walk us through how that works? Yeah, yeah. I think that was the question that I wrestled with the most when I was coming to prepare this this passage. It's it's hard, isn't it? Because I mean, especially when you think you consider those parallels with Exodus, um, which are really strong here, the plagues of Exodus. But we know that you know the plagues of Exodus. Exodus makes it a makes a real point of showing that those plagues didn't affect the Israelites. They didn't affect God's people. They didn't come on the land of Goshen where the Israelites were. Um, and and so if we've got if we've got that background in mind, um, I think we are supposed to be thinking in this chapter. The the emphasis are is on the non Christian world, and and we'd always we'd expect this to be describing judgment that doesn't affect us as Christians. But as you rightly say, I mean, natural disasters do affect us as Christians. So how does, how does that work? I mean, it's clear that in chapter nine, when it's describing the locusts, a, a real point is made there, isn't it? Of um, they're, they're kind of only allowed to torment those people who don't have the seal of God on their foreheads. And so when, when we're reading about um, that kind of satanic persecution and i think th- there we are definitely supposed to be thinking this is this is not something for that, that affects us as christians but earlier on the natural i mean natural disasters just do they do affect us um i think there are two possible answers to that and you know i i'm not sure i've, I've fully got to the bottom this time i don't know whether you've got a, a better answer than me on this but I, I think two possible answers i think one, one is to think just in terms of perspective um, suffering for us is not judgment, um, and yeah, we we will be affected by the things that happen in the world. Obviously, um, by bad things that happen, and we will suffer. But but our sufferings as Christians, we're to think of as as trials, which God uses to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ, um, to build our our hope and give us a, a firmer hope. Um, so to, that that perspective is different. We, the same things might affect us, but they're not intended in the same way. One one is a judgment, the other is a, a trial for our goods. I think the other thing to say on it is, I, I wonder if part of the reason we struggle with that question is just because we, we place too much significance in this world and the time period that we're in now, um, when actually revelation is it's trying to get us to see that it's it's very short, it's a limited time that this is happening for, and it's trying to expand our horizons beyond now. And, and so we, we see then that actually, I mean, we're in this slightly strange overlapping phase of God's plan now. People talk about 
our salvation being having a kind of now and not yetness to it that is is inaugurated but it's not consummated it's kind of begun but not complete and and in this overlapping age judgment as well is inaugurated it's inaugurated on the world that's what we're seeing here but as our revelation goes on we're going to see this is just the beginning and for those who don't turn and trust in christ that is going to get up that is going to get worse and it's going to stretch on forever um for those who are god's people now um it's going to come to an end and and on that day when jesus comes again and and reigns on earth well you know then we're we're really going to see that distinction clearly that distinction from exodus of god's people being separated from judgment that's the time when we're going to see that really clearly hmm. yeah I, I, think I, 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 I what do you think tom i mean the judgments become very explicitly discriminate after the fourth one so from the fifth trumpet onwards is when they start to become a lot more explicit and probably at the same time when they start to become a lot more uh, from a, an end times perspective closer towards the end and in the more, I guess, eschatological time of, of judgment that we see a really strong discrimination through. Um, and I think as well with the increasing intensity, so going from a quarter of the of things being affected in the seals to a third here that I think one of the things I quite liked that you you mentioned when you were talking about um, coronavirus in particular was seeing it as a warning of what's to come. And I think for a yeah. lot of us, um, that warning is, is helpful uh, as the plagues continue to come through in that what they're really calling for repentance, right? And so um, I think naturally Christians at various stages in our in our lives, it's it's only natural that we're caught up in that as we too see the warning and commit ourselves to God that we that we don't experience the the final judgment where we're truly separated from those who don't follow God, but we do experience the warning judgments uh, as we wrestle with our own faith in this world. Mm. Um, something I did want to ask you about um, is it suggests that the at least part of the originating factor of these judgments comes from the prayers of the saints, that that mm. seems to be something that sets off the judgments that come forth. Uh, what's it trying to say to us in that? Yeah, thanks, Tom. I, I mean, I think I yeah, this is one of, one of the things I would love to have spent a bit longer on in, in the sermon on, on Sunday, so I'm glad you asked me. I, I mean, I, I think partly... I, I, one of the things I, I was really hoping to in, include, but but didn't have time to, is to th- just to think of the irony in chapter nine, verse twenty. You know, we get to the end, and uh, mankind doesn't repent in response to these plagues, and um, you know, part, partly mankind's and we see this all the time, don't we? Mankind's attitude in the in the world towards suffering is to say, well, there's a sign that God doesn't care. Um, but, but actually, if you're seeing these chapters in context of the prayers of the saints and the persecution of the people and a response to that, actually, the point of these chapters is to say the exact opposite, right? They're saying, no, actually, all of this is a sign that God does care. He really does care about his people. He cares about the people he's made um, and and the people he loves. And he, he cares a lot when they mistreat one another. Um, and, he, you know, he cares when he's arrogantly ignored and people spurn his love. And he cares very much that his church is brutally persecuted through, throughout the world. You know, Kev 
and the, the previous Sunday's sermon told us some of the statistics of the, the church's suffering um, throughout, throughout the world. You know, how many people, how many Christians are, are dying every day um, for their faith. Um, I, I think, you know, the only reason we think that when we look at the suffering in the world, we think it's a sign of an apathetic God. I mean, really, it's just because we are so self-deceived about the evil in this world and the, you know, just how depraved the human race is and just how persecuted his people are. Um, it's, it's not a sign that he doesn't care. It's a, it's a sign that he does care. Um, and it's a sign for well, it's a sign for the church that the persecution won't go on forever. This, this judgment is inaugurated now. Um, they will be saved from we will be saved from the world in the end and it, you know it's a loving warning as well to the world to, to wake up and and repent yeah fantastic and i think that's uh really helpful in looking at the pastoral uh, value of these passages that often feel very very heavy that understanding our place within them uh, is a really really helpful uh, thing to to talk about um but before we move on i do want to quickly come back to the 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 weight of this particular passage just in that there might be there might have been people who after the weekend felt that um yeah that this mm. that the sermon was very judgment heavy um mm. that you kind of uh didn't you know you, you you certainly didn't pull any punches um and you were very willing as mm. well to um which is something i really appreciated you were very willing to use real world examples to connect to here which is something that i think we often shy away from what, what would you say to someone that that felt that uh the sermon was perhaps more judgment heavy than they would have uh wanted it to be yeah i mean to i mean like i said earlier i tell you it brings no pleasure preaching about judgments um it, it, it really didn't i i would much rather have had another passage to, to preach the, the temptation as a preacher is always with a passage like this to want to soften the impact of it um and to you know to qualify everything you're saying and you know just to say you know, i know this sounds hard but let me reassure you by by telling you something that the bible says elsewhere that's um that's easier for us to hear um and i think you know I, as preachers we've just got to, we've got to believe if we're preaching this passage, this passage is important. It has a message we need to hear loud and clear. And this is the thing that God wants us to hear this Sunday. Um, it, it might not be the only thing, and you know, clearly it isn't the only thing that God says in the Bible about our world now or about judgment, but this is the message we need to hear this week as a, as a church. And we can't, you know, it, it's just not helpful to dilute that, um, and I kind of miss the challenge of this passage. This passage was given to us for a reason. And this passage doesn't pull any punches. This passage doesn't give us those qualifications um, and those caveats within it. Um, and so, you know, I, I need to preach what's here and, and trust God in that. You know, I, I believe that the Bible is God's love letter to us. Um, it's a loving word, even when it's uncomfortable at times. And this is certainly not a comfortable passage. Um but, but there's a yeah, I've, I've got to have the confidence there in in God's words, um, and the, the confidence that it's you know as hard as it is to hear, it's actually it's not going to be put off putting for those whom God has called to know Him. I, I mean, I'm given huge assurance 
about preaching a practice like this from John's gospel. Um, in, in John's gospel, that bit where um, Jesus talks about you know, everyone whom the Father gives him will will come to him. Um, the fact that uh, you know he, he says to the Pharisees, um, "You don't believe because you're not part of my flock, but my my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me." Um, there's a lot in John's gospel about people being drawn to the words of Jesus rather than being put off by them. Those whom God has chosen to save and those whom God has chosen to be his sheep um, won't ever be put off by the words of, of Jesus. Even the words that are hard to hear, they'll be drawn and attracted by them. Um, so I don't, I don't need to worry about the fact that people might be put off by hearing these these difficult words in, in Revelation. Actually, ultimately, if if they're people whom God has called to save, um, then they're not going to be put off by hearing the hard things the Bible has to say because they are the words of their shepherds, which they will li listen to and recognise. Yeah, great. I think that's really helpful um, for, for people to hear, especially as we think about preaching as well and, and the task of, of preaching and how the responsibility of that weighs on us as we approach the Bible. Uh, and, of course, now Kev gets to come in next week with some uh, really awesome things to, to talk to us about that <laughs> you this theme, yes. so. Um, yeah. so you got quite love um, to preach chapter he's got that yeah <laughs> <laughs> cool um something that i thought we could, we could do very quickly now is um i was thinking i might just go through and list a few of the old testament allusions that might not be as obvious that seem to be in here and give you an opportunity to expand on on any of them that you might feel uh, is helpful. Um, obviously, the the Exodus plague stuff is the stuff that stands out really obviously. Um, but there's a, a few other things. So that I'll, I'll just list them through, and then you can jump on whichever ones you feel like. Um, the the first one, the um, kind of the obvious influence of Genesis on the first four trumpets that seem to be talking about the four regions uh, of creation, um, the the concept of the trumpets themselves potentially being linked to Joshua 6 with the trumpets uh, at the city of Jericho, um, the army of locusts that just screams of Joel 2 uh, as, as we see judgment in that passage uh, and and, all, and also at the end, um, the potential illusion in response to the the failure of uh, the people to repent, there seems to be an echo of Pharaoh's response in there too, perhaps. Mm. Um, are there, yeah, yeah were, there, were there any of those that kind of took your fancy? Yeah, I mean, again, if I'd had, had more time, I might have... I might have talked a little bit about that idea, you know, that idea you're alluding to there of Genesis and and the kind of decreation that seems to be going on with, with these first four plagues, um, which again is, you know, it's an idea you see in Exodus as, as well with the, the plagues there, um, almost almost a kind of decreation that's happening there. Um, yeah, I, I wonder if, you know, partly partly that's helpful because it, well it, it makes us think this is a this is a fair judgment of god what he's doing you know these are all these aspects of creation these are things that god's given the world or he's given given us everything hasn't he Every, everything is from him um he's made made the world 
Um, it's all a, a gift from him. We don't have any of this by rights. Um, and yeah, so how can we complain if we misuse it and God takes it away? We, we, we can't. That's justice. Um, mm. You know, I was, um, you know, saw my brother and his family recently. Um, he's got, got four young children. You know, it just made me think, actually, reading this through, you know, if, if he gave to one of one of them a gift um, and, you know, they, the way they used that gift was to hit one of their siblings over the head with it. You know, if, if my brother was then to take away that gift, uh, you know, it probably, probably, <laughs> you, you'd get screaming and and crying and oh this is so unfair but it's not unfair is it you know you've taken mm. a good gift and, and misused it and used it for the persecution of one of your siblings and is it really surprising then that dad is going to take that away and you know I think that's a helpful perspective actually on chapter eight and what's going on here and, you know it, it, this is God's response to the persecution of his people from the inhabitants of the earth. Um, so how can there be any complaints if he, his response to that is to take away the good creation that he's given? You know, they, they've used that creation, their createdness, um, to harm their fellow man. Yeah, great. Um, on the, not, not specifically on the locust, but towards the end of the locust analogy, um, there appears to be uh, an, an allusion to a, a potential historical figure. Um, so the, the king in verse 11, chapter 9, they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek his, uh, he is called Apollyon, which means destroyer. Do you, do you think uh, there's a reference to potentially a, a Roman emperor there? Do you think that's relevant in our understanding of the passage? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I th- so uh, Apollo, um, Apollyon is is derived from the, the same word as Apollo, one of the Roman gods. Um, Apollo's sim is kind of symbolised as a locust, I think, um, or as a locust, uh, kind of emblem of a locust, something like that. And um, Domitian, the emperor Domitian, uh, he, he kind of, claimed i think to be an incarnation of apollo so yeah i mean it just kind of feeds into uh, something i was saying earlier about the, the fact that there i think there were some pretty some specific immediate first century examples in in the details here that you know, they would have seen and kind of a, a, immediately what some of these refer, images were referring to in the first instance um but the, again, it's not just that. They're not just images about the first century in history. This is a words to the church throughout the, the ages. And that, that is just one manifestation of a, a pattern of things that is going to be apparent throughout the last days. Yeah, awesome. Uh, imagine if you had included all of these different images in your sermon, we'd probably still be listening to you right now. Well, yes. Um, I mean, you are still listening to me right now. <laughs> um, one thing though um after after preaching a sermon like this after spending all this time in this passage were there any um personal reflections and application that that you've taken away yeah i, I mean the thing that really struck me was just that idea of this kind of wartime mindset 
I, found, I just found that so striking to think through. Do I, do I really think about the world in those kind of terms? You know, how, how would I feel if I were, you know, if this country were at war right now? You know, how would I feel if I were living in London in the middle of the Blitz? You know, my expectations of life would be very different, <laughs> really different. I'd, and I'd be, you know, I'd really be longing, wouldn't I, for the war to be over? Um, I'd, I'd be longing for things to be different. I'd be longing for that day of victory. Um, you know, I'd be, I'm sure my mind would be much more focused just on the imminent danger, on survival, on en enduring through to the, the end. And those are the things that, you know, Revelation wants us to be to be doing, to be enduring to the end. You know, Revelation is, I think it's just so helpful, isn't it, in, in waking us up to the reality of the, the world, the fact that we are in this monumental battle and, yeah, just, just the, the world constantly wants me to think that's not the case, to think that here and now is what matters and, um, you know, to, to think I can be comfortable in this world, but I can't be. Revelation says I can't be. Um, that's just not the reality of, of what we're in. And, we, you know, we're so bad at patience, aren't we? We, we want now, we want there to be a possibility of comfort now. Um Revelation is saying, look, you know, realize the time you're in is short. It is going to come to an end. It is going to be a struggle now. You, you've got to be aware of that. You've got to be on guard. And, you know, Peter says that the devil prowls around us like a roaring lion. Um, there are going to be, there are real dangers now. We, we need to be alert um, and self-controlled and sober-minded. Um, yeah, and I mean, it struck me as well, you know, this, uh, again, this, on this warfare idea that the church used to use language of warfare a lot more than it does now you know we you think about the, the salvation army as an organization there's their name um that that song that old hymn onward christian soldiers um and and that language we've we've dropped quite a lot of um i think probably because we're we're quite nervous of being misunderstood um you know, from, from a kind of history of the Crusades and how it's been, how it has been misunderstood, this idea of warfare, or, you know, in modern times, because we don't want to be, rightly don't want to be associated with extremism and, and Islam, extremist Islam in, in particular, and the idea of jihad, and we, we want to be, we want to be kind of, um, we, we don't want to give that impression of what we're saying when we say that the, the church is God's army, definitely. But it, it's helpful language. Uh, it is helpful language for us, which is kind of a shame that we've lost it, I, I think. I've got a friend who's a, a missionary out in Moldova, um, part of a, a evangelical movement out there called the Lord's Army. And you know, I, I went out with him once and just thought that just seems very strange to me to call your church movement the, the lord's army it's well that just sounds a bit um i'm not sure how comfortable i am with that but it, yeah I, it is a biblical idea um, and we, we lose something if we forget that yeah i think that's uh really great ed and really nice as well to hear your own uh personal uh reflection on how you were yourself changed by the passage as you read it and thought about it and dwelt on it i really enjoyed your sermon so th thanks so much for that and i think um yeah i think hearing your reflection that's a really good point uh for, for us to finish on uh thanks so much for giving me a bit of your time uh so that we can explore things a bit further and, and hopefully this will be helpful for people 
as they continue to read through Revelation themselves and, and engage with the sermons each week. Thank you, Ed. Thanks, Tom. That was After Hours. Join us next week or get in touch with us at houstonchurch.com.